All right, let's get started, everybody. Um, excited for today's lecture. This is interesting stuff. There's nothing lawyers like more than talking about lawyers, and we get two chances to do that today. Um, surprisingly beautiful day. Like, where did that come from? It's chilly, though. I have my coffee and like, I don't need it this morning because I have a Nissan Leaf and I got, I dropped the kids off at school and it was like, that was like it was plugged in all night and then it was like low battery. And I guess I had maybe kicked the cord out or so, I don't know what happened. So I had like 20 kilometers of range to get 17 kilometers out to UBC. And it was just like white knuckles. And I was going so well the whole way, like, you know, just minimally touching the accelerator and regenerative braking and all that stuff. And then I got to the hill up to UBC, and then it just went from like 13, 12, 11, 10. They started flashing at me like, I'm not gonna tell you how many more kilometers you have. So I'm very pepped up, I'm awake. <laughs> um, so let's get into it. Um, so we, yeah, we got two cases to, to talk about today, and I think where we're left at, at the end of the Trinity Western University case, is I think a pretty clear um, that there's, there's a question mark as to how this process of resolving charter rights, values, and administrative law framework and deference is going to resolve going forward. There's different approaches that are offered by the different judges. Um, and the unanimity that we saw in Dore as to the approach is very much uh, no longer the case. Um, not just amongst the judges who are new, but also judges who were in the unanimous court on Dore. And of course, there's been even more turnover on the court since uh, the Trinity Western case. So this is an area that, you know, I, I safe to say that we are not at the end of the road on this question of how do we assess, you know, whether the administrative decision makers themselves have exercised their powers, their discretion in a way that respects and is consistent with the charter. Um, so just to make sure we're all exactly on the same page. You know, we've talked about the ability of administrative decision makers to assess the constitutionality of legislation. That's that Cuddy-Chicks framework. We've talked about the ability of administrative decision makers to assess the constitutionality of other administrative actors, of other members of the executive. That's the um, Conway case. And now we're getting into the ability of the courts to review the actions of the administrative decision makers themselves to make sure they've exercised their power in a way consistent with the charter. And that's the Dore framework. And you see it called the Dore Loyola framework. Uh, Loyola is another case mentioned in the book. I didn't have you read it because I think Trinity Western is probably the more thorough examination of the subject. Um, Loyola is a, a case that came shortly after Dore and applied the framework. So you, you'll see Dore, you'll see Dore and Loyola, um, but I'll just call it the Dore framework. And so let's, let's talk about Dore. A really interesting case. 
that comes out of the professional discipline context, right? So it's lawyer who gets in hot water with the law society of Quebec, the borough uh, to Quebec. And I mean, the facts here are pretty remarkable. It seems like, I mean, I don't want to disparage anyone, but there are certain judges in BC who maybe had reputations as being difficult and argumentative and cantankerous. And there are certain lawyers who get the reputation for being difficult and argumentative and cantankerous. And it seems like what you had here is the kind of the most of both came together and the outcome was maybe inevitable. So you've got this lawyer, Gilles Doré, who is um, ultimately disciplined under the Quebec Code of Ethics, which is their functional equivalent to the um, rules of the law society, uh, the law society rules, which set out your obligations as a lawyer, um, which are themselves a regulation under the Legal Professions Act. So it's a, a similar thing where you have a instrument that comes from the legislature, the law society rules you know, being a regulation ultimately derived from legislative regulation making power, or these, uh, this Quebec code. So you've got, a, in essence, a regulation that um, is, provides the, the uh, standards for lawyers to practice in accordance with, and Mr. Doré is found to have violated those standards. So he doesn't challenge the Quebec Code of Ethics directly. He doesn't say the Quebec Code of Ethics, this regulation, is unconstitutional. If he had done so, he would be within a cutty chicks analysis, right? It would be the administrative tribunal being asked to opine on the constitutionality of a statute or regulation. Instead, he says, no, 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 the, look, the Quebec Code of Ethics is fine, but how it was applied to me violated my charter rights, and specifically my charter right of expression. Uh, the facts leading up to this you know, are worth going over because they are, they are interesting, and I think it helps you understand the balancing that ultimately happens to specifically recall the speech that is at issue. So you have Doré, he's counsel in a criminal trial, and in court, the trial judge says to him, an insolent lawyer is rarely of use to his client, which is, you know, we'll talk about the judge's consequences in a second. Then in his reasons, you know, after saying that in court, the judge accuses Doré of using bombastic rhetoric and hyperbole and saying he must put aside his impudence. So then Doré decides, you know, you don't accuse me of bombastic rhetoric. And then he writes a letter, which we should have a little read through. <laughs> This is a letter to the court, and he writes to the judge specifically, not copied to anybody else. And he says, sir, I have just left the court. 
just a few minutes ago is you hid beneath your status like a coward. You made comments about me that were both unjust and unjustified, scattering them here and there in a decision, the good faith of which will most likely be argued before our court of appeal. Because you ducked out quickly and refused to hear me, I have chosen to write a letter as an entirely personal response to the equally personal remarks you permitted yourself to make about me. This letter, therefore, is from man to man and is outside the ambit of my profession and your functions. If no one has ever told you the following, then it is high time someone did. Your chronic inability to master any social skills, to use an expression in English, that language you love so much, which has caused you to become pedantic, aggressive, and petty in your daily life makes no difference to me. After all, it seems to suit you well. This is great. Your deliberate expression of these character traits while exercising your judicial functions, however, and you're having made them your trademark, concern me a great deal, and I feel it's appropriate to tell you. Your legal knowledge, which appears to have earned the approval of a certain number of your colleagues, is far from sufficient to make you the person you could or should be professionally. Your determination to obliterate any humanity from your judicial position, your essentially non-existent listening skills, and your propensity to use your court where you lack the courage to hear opinions contrary to your own to launch ugly, vulgar, and mean personal attacks, not only confirms that you are as loathsome as suspected, but also casts shame on you as a judge, the most extraordinarily important function that was entrusted to you. I would like to have said this to your face, but I highly doubt that given your arrogance, you are able to face your detractors without hiding behind your judicial position. Worst of all, you possess the most appalling of all defects for a man in your position. You are fundamentally unjust. I doubt that will ever change. Sincerely, <laughs> Shields <Shielster. laughs> It's almost like it's... I mean, you think like those emails that you write and you're like, oh, maybe I should just wait. <laughs> but I feel like this... He's a good writer. You can't take that away from him. Um, but... Maybe not the best counter to the assertion you're bombastic. Anyway, so then um, Doré writes this letter just to the judge, but then asks the Chief Justice of Quebec to no longer allow his cases to be heard by that judge. Then he complains to the Canadian Judicial Council about the judge. Um, the Chief Justice gets the letter, presumably the judge gave it to him, and the chief judge sends that on to the you know, Quebec Law Society, saying, hey, this is out of bounds. But the Canadian Judicial Council considers the actions of the judge and finds that he was out of line. They say that um, he acted in an unnecessarily insulting manner in a way that could tarnish counsel's reputation, and they, in fact, issue a reprimand against the judge himself. But the Barreau de Quebec... The Quebec Law Society also finds that Doré has misconducted himself. So, the, the Quebec Law Society considers and rejects the idea that finding him to have misconducted himself in these circumstances represents an unjustifiable limit on his expression. And he's disciplined with a 21-day suspension. So this then takes like the long and winding road up to the Supreme Court of Canada, where you have an internal appeal within the law society itself, and a judicial review with the Quebec Superior Court, 
then a Quebec Court of Appeal decision, then a Leave to Appeal decision, and then finally the Supreme Court of Canada decides the matter, you know, some 11 years after this letter is written. So, you know, interestingly enough, considering Voltani, um, I think we saw last class at the end, pretty clearly set the stage for the idea that there's going to have to be a um, grappling with whether Section 1 analysis under an Oaks framework is going to continue to work in the Charter, or sorry, in the Administrative Law Framework, or whether there's going to be some switch away, uh, as suggested by Justices Deschamps and Abella in that dissent in uh, Maltani. Um, so the stage seemed set, and this case really seems to raise it clearly and perfectly, uh, but it attracts relatively little attention. I was, I was looking to actually show you some clips from the hearing, because it's not that long ago, uh, but it, there's only three um, counsel appeared, only one intervener. Um, it's all in French, and it hews very closely to the facts of the case. Uh, we'll see in a sec when we get to Trinity Western, you know, the lawyers woke up that time, and there's about 80 lawyers in that case. But the, um, so it's a relatively, you know, short hearing. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's not like Vavilov, where people are like, oh, when's the Doré going to come out? But when it does come out, it sends, you know, huge ripples through the administrative and charter sort of uh, bar and academic worlds, because it does indeed jettison the idea that you're going to do a traditional Section 1 Oaks analysis within this question of applying the charter to a review of administrative decision and their exercise of discretion. So you have Justice Abella writing for the unanimous court and deciding ultimately that we are going to be able to reconcile a reasonableness deferential framework for administrative law review with charter analysis. And right off the bat, interestingly enough for how these questions are, these are some of the, the main questions that will be grappled with throughout the Trinity Western um, discussions, is right off the bat she recognizes the, the sort of key issues to address within trying to land charter within administrative law with a deferential framework, which is we have to figure out the question of burden, and we have to be able to make sure that rights are no less robustly protected under this administrative framework. Um, of course, that the latter proposition is undisputable. It cannot be the case that if there's legislation which specifically mandates a particular outcome, then I can challenge that. And if I could challenge that successfully, you know, I get my result. But if that exact same outcome occurs through an exercise of administrative discretion, 
it cannot be the case that I get a different outcome, that I can't successfully challenge that. Um, so everybody agrees that must be the goal, but whether that's accomplished is a source of much disagreement in these cases, or especially in the Trinity Western case, whether this framework accomplishes that goal. And then the, the burden question is the other one that's tricky, because ordinarily within an administrative law context, whose burden is it to show that the decision ought to be set aside? Well, it's whoever wants the decision to be set aside and you have the burden of showing the decision is unreasonable. But within a charter context, as we all know, there's a flipping of burden if you can show a prima facie infringement of your rights. And if you could show a prima facie infringement of your rights, then the burden flips to the state to demonstrate that such limit is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And you may also remember this from constitutional law, from the Charter. But you may remember that in Canada, we have generally taken the approach of expansively defining the rights themselves while allowing justification so that these expansively defined rights don't pose too great of a burden to the functioning of government and society. So we don't read limits into your right of freedom of expression. Rather, we give a very broad definition of what is protected speech. But then we give the state a chance to justify any limitation on that. And the upshot of that is that nearly everything is protected speech. There's very little speech that attracts no protection whatsoever. So that means if you have an administrative regime that deals with speech, any limitation on it is going to be a prima facie infringement, and then it's going to be a justification question. So. If you're just to say, well, the burden is on the individual to show a prima facie infringement, then the burden is on the state to justify that. You're going to have an administrative scheme that's going to admit to basically a, a reverse burden, right? It's basically going to be every time there's a decision of, a, say, a disciplinary body that somebody misconducted themselves through their speech or expression, the burden is going to consistently be on the state to justify that. You know, as opposed to, in the administrative context, what you would expect is the burden on the individual to show an unreasonable decision. So when thinking about this question of burden, you want to keep in the back of your mind that it is especially important because of that way the rights have been defined to be so expansive on the rights definition stage, leaving the work to the state, which you know works very well within the court framework, but is part of the challenge in transposing it into the administrative law framework. Now you'll note this that question of burden is raised in you know, maybe the first paragraph you read, or one of the first five paragraphs you would have read yesterday. 
And if you did get through Brown and Cote's descent, you'll notice that they, at the end of Trinity Western, probably the last thing you would have read, is they said, you still haven't even told me how this burden question is resolved within your framework. I still don't get it. So you know, this is a, a difficult one that I um, clearly needs a little bit more explanation. So with that sort of said, I'm going to get a little more into the, the analysis. And the substance of her analysis really begins at paragraph 24, where she observes that administrative decision makers you know, must act consistently with the values underlying the grant of discretion. And these include charter values. And so this sort of gets right back to um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the case, which is insane. The Quebec case talked about all the time with the misfeasance in office and the guy who didn't like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Thank you. That's so funny. My brain is still on my little electric car. Ron Corelli. This gets right back to Ron Corelli almost. He says, look, you always need to act consistently with the values underlying the grant of discretion, which is really another way of saying consistently with the purpose of the grant of discretion. And so just as in Ron Corelli, you couldn't ignore the statutory scheme, neither here can you ignore the, you know, the highest component of the statutory scheme, which is the charter, the most supreme law. You can't ignore the underlying values which animate that grant of discretion to you. You must act consistent with that highest law. So you can see how she's kind of drawing off of Conway. Then she goes on to discuss the Slate case, which we had touched upon briefly the other day, where they just basically import a Section 1 Oaks analysis to determine whether or not you know, that expression was, uh, the limited expression of that case was justified. And she notes that the case has attracted significant academic criticism because it has not, um, you know, recognized the difference in context between a review of legislation and a review of an exercise of administrative discretion or power. And so she goes on to say the answer to reconciling these two things, or sorry, the answer to um, you know, making a coherent framework going forward is to draw upon this idea of these values that animate any exercise of discretion that come from the charter. And she says, I'm not making this up. And this is something you'll see in any Supreme Court of Canada case where there's a new framework. They always say, oh, no, 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 this is it's not new at all. And so she draws upon Baker, 
And in Baker, uh, there's a passage where the court said, uh, though discretionary decisions will generally be given considerable respect, the discretion must be exercised in accordance with the boundaries imposed in the statute, the principles of the rule of law, the principles of administrative law, the fundamental values of Canadian society, and the principles of the charter. So, you know, she does locate the idea that these charter principles will guide exercises of discretion, but she takes a step of elevating that to displacing the need to go through a formal Oaks analysis. And she says, we can take that idea of looking to the values underlying the exercise of discretion being constrained by the charter, and we can fit that in with a move towards greater deference in administrative decisions, because if we move away from a sort of strict formulaic, formula, um, formulaic Oaks analysis, we can instead um, you know, offer an analysis that's going to give more room for deference and leave the sort of primary first-level decision-making with the tribunals themselves. So she says at, at paragraph 30 in a, um, and I think a, a good paragraph to highlight within your, your notes, she says, when we look at the jurisprudence broadly, we see a completely revised relationship between the charter, the courts, and administrative law than the one first encountered in Slate. She notes that in Dunsmuir, the court held that judicial review should be guided by a policy of deference, justified on the basis of legislative intent, respect for expertise, and recognition that courts are of a monopoly on adjudication in the administrative state. And then she refers to Conway directly, saying that in that case, building on the developments of the jurisprudence, the court found that administrative tribunals with the power to decide questions of law have the authority to apply the charter and grant charter remedies that are linked to matters properly before them. So she says, look, Conway, we, we've, we've really recognized that the charter isn't exclusively the purview of the courts. It can be interpreted and applied by administrative tribunals. She says, Dunsmuir, we've been you know, embracing deference and we've been moving away from a court-centered idea of the rule of law, in essence. When you put those two things together, there's no reason that we can't say the tribunal can decide you know, these charter, balancing these charter issues at first instance, and we can still give some deference to that. We don't need to get into a situation where as soon as you say charter, as soon as you say my charter rights are an issue, the court says, okay, tribunal couldn't possibly consider this. They're, it's outside their knowledge. This is, now we're in the world of courts and only we can consider that. She rejects that. She says, no, Dunsmuir shows this. Deference is the rule. Conway shows that the tribunals are capable of thinking about the charter. Put those two things together and we can introduce some reasonableness review, a deferential standard 
to looking at how these bodies have balanced charter issues. So then in paragraphs 34 and 35, she sets out, you know, I think an excellent articulation of the choice that is before the courts. And she says, the court has two options for reviewing discretionary administrative decisions that implicate charter values. The first is to adopt the Oaks framework, developed for reviewing laws for compliance with the Constitution. This undoubtedly protects charter rights, but it does so at the risk of undermining a more robust conception of administrative law. In the words of Professor Evans, now Justice Evans, if administrative law is bypassed for the charter, a rich source of thought and experience about law and government will be overlooked. And just pausing there, what I think they're getting at is if you cut out the administrative decision maker and say the courts are going to apply their framework you know, in a correctness way, you're missing out on the, the knowledge of this body and you're missing out on the opportunity to effectively incorporate them into the broader project of protecting charter rights in this country. So she says that's one option though, and it's attractive for some reasons, but the alternative is for the court to embrace a richer conception of administrative law under which discretion is exercised in light of constitutional guarantees and the values they reflect. Under this approach, she said, it is unnecessary to retreat to a Section 1 Oaks analysis in order to protect charter values. Rather, administrative decisions are always required to consider fundamental values. The charter simply acts as a reminder that some values are clearly fundamental and cannot be violated lightly. The administrative law approach also recognizes the legitimacy that this court has given to administrative decision-making in cases such as Dunsmuir and Conway. These cases emphasize that administrative bodies are empowered and indeed required to consider charter values within the scope of their expertise. Integrating charter values into the administrative approach and recognizing the expertise of these decision-makers opens an institutional dialogue about the appropriate use and control of discretion rather than the older command and control relationship. Citing UBC's old Mary Liston on that point. So, you know, it's a lot to unpack in those paragraphs and you probably want to give them a, a bit of a, a close read. But she's, I think this is again, you know, a, uh, that Dicean dilemma being um, considered again. You know, we see this over and over again. Is it the courts who have to have the final say? You know, first the question was, do the courts have to have the final say on everything about administrative law? They said, no. You know, at least the courts, um, Initially, as courts have the final say, you can review everything. Then there starts to be, you know, barriers, and you can only review these sort of jurisdictional questions. And they say, well, no, 
the courts don't even have the final say on the interpretation of the law or jurisdiction. There's a reasonableness review there. And now they're saying, well, let's us even bring the charter into that. There's no reason even the supreme law is going to be the exclusive purview of the courts. Let's invite the administrative tribunals into the discussion. Let's get their expertise. Let's get their understanding. Let's sort of democratize the charter. Let's take the courts off this high pedestal and let's leave them in the framework of ensuring that there's reasonable decisions, but not necessarily saying that it's gonna be exclusively the decisions that they would make had they decided that in the first instance. So you know, it should fit in these broad themes of this course. And then she goes on to note uh, that, look, departing from Oaks isn't that radical. And she notes that using the example that I ended the class with on Wednesday, when we're talking about the common law and its development, we don't apply the charter directly and we don't do an Oaks analysis to see if the common law of defamation is, you know, justifiable in a free and democratic society in light of its impacts on expression, but rather we rely on this charter values idea to develop the common law. And so she says, I'm basically taking the same thing and using that in this administrative context. And fundamentally what she's getting at, and this is, you know, I think the, the point that you have to keep in the back of your mind uh, in the practical side of things is it just can't be the case that you can invoke a charter right anytime you want to transmutate something from a reasonableness review to a correctness review. And specifically with expression and equality, you could fit so many things into those boxes of at least touching on expression and equality or equality in some way, that it would be far too easy to sidestep a deferential framework if you were allowed to do that. And she says, you know, hey, look where we are in this professional disciplinary context. You know, what is it that's gonna get you in trouble as a lawyer? More likely than not, it's something you say or substance abuse. Like those are the two things that are most likely to get you in trouble as a lawyer, right? And substance abuse implicates section 15 if you have a uh, disability in that regard. And things you say obviously implicate expression so it'd be very hard to have a deferential framework if any time someone's charter rights were implicated, you automatically moved into correctness. So then the key paragraphs for sort of understanding the approach set out in Doré are paragraphs 55 through 58. So I wanna go through those somewhat carefully. So she says at 55, how does an administrative decision maker apply charter values in the exercise of discretion? 
Well, he or she balances the charter values with the statutory objectives. In affecting this balance, the decision maker should first consider the statutory objectives. In Lake, for instance, the importance of Canada's international obligations, its relationship with foreign governments, and invest the investigation, prosecution, suppression of international crime, justified prima facie infringement of mobility rights. So she says, look, first identify the statutory objective. Now, if you're thinking about your Oaks test, what's the first step in the Oaks test? Pressing a substantial objective, exactly. So, you know, there, there's a mirror there. Let's start by thinking about the statutory objective that's trying to be accomplished in this administrative grant of discretion. Let's identify it. Then let's think about how in accomplishing this statutory objective, the decision maker can best protect the charter values at issue. This is the core of the proportionality exercise, she says, and requires the decision maker to balance the severity of the interference of the charter protection with the statutory objectives. So, you're balancing the statutory objective with its impact on charter rights and trying to best protect. Well, what's another way of phrasing best protect? Minimally impair, right? It's kind of the same thing. Like, what's the best protection for this right? What's the way I can least impair? this right. So you see a, this framework is put forward which tracks the Oaks considerations but just does them in a more administrative law tribunal centric focused way. And then she says, look, when you are looking at whether something is best protecting the value at issue, very much akin to the minimal impairment analysis. And this is a point that you probably remember from the charter, but when they say minimally impair in section one, Oak's analysis, you know, do they mean the absolute minimally impairing solution the court could think up? No. There's this concept of deference introduced in Irwin Toy and in the RJR McDonald case, where the court says, we will defer to the legislature's choice amongst a set of reasonable alternatives at this minimal impairment stage. She quotes from RJR McDonald, where the court said, courts must accord some leeway to the legislature in the charter balancing exercise and the proportionality test will be satisfied if the measure falls within a range of reasonable alternatives. So she says, you think we're crazy to introduce deference into this uh, charter values framework, but hold on, it's already there in the Oaks framework. It's already there in the minimal impairment stage where we are deferring to the legislature's choice 
amongst the reasonable alternatives. And it's just the same here. Now we're deferring to the tribunal's choice amongst reasonably proportional balancing of the charter values against that state objective that's furthered by the legislation. And so she says a judicial review, you know, just we're asking this question. Does, sorry, um, in assessing the impact of the relevant charter protection and given the nature of the decision in the statutory and factual context, does the decision reflect a proportionate balancing of the charter protections at play? So she says we have a fundamental question, which is just, is this a proportionate balancing? And you probably remember that the steps uh, you know, two, three, and four of the Oaks framework, the rational connection, minimal impairment, and general proportionality, are together referred to as a proportionality component of Oaks. So has she imported the Oaks framework in a rote manner into the charter values analysis? No, it's different in a sense. But does it very closely track the Oaks approach? You know, she would say yes. So she says, ultimately, Although this judicial review is conducted within the administrative framework, there is nonetheless conceptual, conceptual harmony, conceptual harmony between a reasonableness review and the Oaks framework, since both contemplate giving a margin of appreciation or deference to administrative and legislative bodies in balancing charter values against broader objectives. And she concludes, if, in exercising its statutory discretion, the decision maker has properly balanced the relevant charter value with the statutory objective, the decision will be found to be reasonable. So she applies the framework. And she says, look, if you're dealing with disciplining lawyers for their speech about justice system participants, you have to tolerate a degree of discordant criticism. And sometimes even forceful criticism can be required. And she says that if you're a disciplinary body, you better explain that you've given due regard to the importance of the expressive rights at issue. And this is not just the lawyer's interest in having his or her expressive rights, but also the public interest in having people who are able to freely and fearlessly express themselves you know, on these issues of fundamental importance to our functioning 
as a democratic society. So she does not, in any sense, I don't think, downplay the importance of robust expressive protection within the professional disciplinary context. But, she says, you know, it's got its limits as to how far you can go. And there is an expectation amongst lawyers that when you express yourself, you will uh, conduct yourself in a manner sort of consistent with the profession. And she says here we have an excessive degree of vituperation, another word I learned, in the letters context and tone. And she says this is this went beyond what you had to do. You, you, went, you went over the line. And that's why I want to read the letter to you, just to show you, you know, how far the lawyer went. Um, because I think that might help you understand how you know, it may be possible to say, we still robustly protect this expression, but this is over the line. And she said, in that circumstance, it cannot be said to be unreasonable to conclude this warranted a reprimand. So let's think this through. That conclusion is important. It cannot be said to be unreasonable. Now, is that the way you would conclude a Section 1 Oaks analysis? No. You wouldn't end an Oaks analysis by saying, it's not unreasonable that your charter rights were infringed in the circumstance. You say, no. The state has demonstrably justified that your charter rights um, have only been limited to the extent necessary in a, or that can be justified in a free and democratic society. There's no reasonableness, there's no deference in that analysis. There is at the minimal impairment stage, but not in the ultimate conclusion where the court is asking itself that question and answering whether this can be demonstrably justified. But here she's saying, you know, fundamentally, I'm not telling you if I would have balanced it the same way. I'm not telling you necessarily that it would have been unreasonable to go the other way. But I'm saying this is not an unreasonable balancing. So despite the degree to which it tracks the Oaks analysis, the conclusion still is squarely within a deferential administrative All right, so just I've really pressed through that. So let's stop. Are there any questions on Dora? Yeah. Yeah, that the reasoning process, absolutely, absolutely. And so I would say post-Vavilov, there would be a heightened burden on the administrative decision maker to explain how they have understood and conceptualized the charter value at stake and ensured it's given adequate protection. And that's a great point that we'll see you know, very shortly in, in the Trinity Western case where you have a complete absence of reasons as to the balancing of the charter rights at stake. 
Yeah. Can you expand a bit on the difference between a charter right and a charter value? Because in theory they're distinct, but yeah. it seems like we're using them fairly interchangeably. And a lot of the language here, like going back to fundamental importance of open and forth criticism, it all just seems to be couched in freedom of expression language. So how is the right itself distinct from the value that it's protecting? hundred percent the Milnar question, and that's what three sets of reasons in Trinity Western University, they asked that exact question, basically, of the majority in Trinity Western. Like, explain to me what the difference between rights and values are, and explain to me why I even care about values. I don't care about values, I care about rights. What does the Charter protect? It protects rights. And I think, I don't have a great answer for that because I don't think that the um, majority analysis in either case has done a very good job on that point. And I think Justices Brown and Cote have the strongest um, criticism on that angle. And they say, listen, if you move to this language of values, A, it's not what's protected. You have a charter right, not a value. But B, you seem to be sort of jettisoning all the work we've done to define the contours of the rights throughout the last almost 40 years, 40 years in April of the Charter. It's my wife's birthday the Charter came in, so I know exactly <laughs> how long it's been. Um, April 17th, 1982. So, <laughs> um, so, the, they say, like, let's think about expression. And what's the value of expression? Well, I think we all might have different values of expression. We all may value expression for different ways and different, uh, different you know, purposes. Um, equality, like, what's the value of equality? Um, treating everybody exactly the same can be equality. Treating different people differently can be the essence of substantive equality. Which value are we talking about? When we're in the rights framework, we know. You know, we know that equality in Section 15 means substantive equality. It imports this you know, long line of jurisprudence culminating in the, you know, the, the Quebec versus A case, uh, the Inuit Taperist case, or not Inuit or the uh, case that followed that. Um, and so the, that question of, you know, what do we mean by values? Is there a distinction between rights and values is, is extremely difficult. And the, the, the Brown point is, Brown and Cote's point is it's one thing where the charter doesn't apply to refer to values. And when we're talking about the development of the common law as between private individuals, the charter does not apply. But we are always looking at society's values, and we might find those values in the charter to develop the common law. But they say the big sort of Rubicon you're crossing here is you're taking values over the river and putting it into a place where rights apply, and you're subtracting um, express protection of the rights in favor of this amorphous idea of values. So, you know, your question just hits the dilemma on the head. Um, and 
you know, I think the the um, it feels like the wind is blowing. That the values language is going to be jettisoned. That does seem to me where it's going, because I don't have a better answer than that, to be honest. For the purpose of our exam, should, do we need to delineate the difference between the two? Because obviously the Dore language is values. Not yeah. So if everyone has a different conception of what the value of a certain right might be or what a charter value is, can we express that in our own language or do you expect us to like bring in charter rights language? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually hadn't really thought of that because I'm not testing you on your knowledge of what's the most up-to-date framework to assess a private facing 2B protection or what's the exact scope of section 2A. Um, and so what I care about is seeing that you understand the administrative law framing. And I care about you spotting that you would need to consider whether this decision is defensible on a Dore framework, which still is the framework now. Um, so I, I think that you'd want to, you know, identify the, like, I guess fundamentally, I don't care that you identify the test that would be appropriate just for a charter case. That's not what I'm testing on. I also don't care how you resolve any particular fact pattern. There's not a right answer. Just, you know, I, I want to see the, you set up the framework, and I want to see you apply the facts of the framework and come to a conclusion, but I, there's no right or wrong answer what the conclusion is. So um, what I would like, and I don't need you to spend pages and pages saying, you know, delineating the difference between charter rights and charter values in this debate that, that exists. Um, but what I think I would like to see is an explanation of the Doré framework uh, as it's been accepted in Trinity Western University. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing the degree to which there is a distinction between rights and values is a matter of significant debate. Um, but uh, on either framework, you know, we're looking at the issue of equality and the question will be whether the tribunals properly and proportionally balanced equality against the statutory objectives. Um, and the factors that would come into this would include, you know, this, this, and this. It would be the facts, and I would conclude this. Um, so that, that's a very good question, though, and I, I appreciate you raising that because um, this is probably where things are so unsettled. This is the hardest for you in an exam. My plan next week with the week off is to write two exams, one your for real exam and one practice exam because you know unfortunately it's the first year I've taught the course so I don't have previous year's exams to share with you but I do want to give you one of those that we would go over during that review portion of the course in the last week um, and so you've given me a good thing to chew over as I work through that exam and so I, I'll give you more information on you know that specific issue um, certainly by the time we get to the review That's a great point, though. Thanks for reading that. Um, all right, well, then let's take our break, and we'll come back and talk about Trinity Western.
All right, let's get back to it. Sorry, I got a bit lost in the interesting conversation there. Um, all right, Trinity Western University, like as fascinating a case as, as they come and it's got a commensurately long and complicated judgment to get through. Um, and hopefully we'll get as much as we can today. We may carry over a little bit into next, uh, or I guess not next week, but the week after's class. Uh, I, I don't want to give short shrift, especially to the reasons of Justices Brown and Cote, because I think they're the best articulation of some of the problems with the Doré framework. Uh, and they're formidable reasons. And if you didn't get a chance to get that far into the judgment, I really do recommend you have a look at those reasons also. But let's get into it. So um, fundamentally, the question here, Trinity Western University wants to create a law school. They do uh, go through the process to create a law school. They go to the Federation of Law Schools, or whatever the exact name is, and the Federation says, yeah, you're academically rigorous. This is uh, legitimate. You, you, you're approved to be a law school. The way the uh, Legal Professions Act works is once the Federation approves a law school, it is presumptively accredited to uh, have its graduates attend the professional legal training course and be able to become a lawyer, unless the benchers say otherwise. So Trinity Western University, once it gets its okay from the Federation, um, looks to be okay. So the you're aware of the way the law society is governed, are you, with benchers? We're having an election right now for new benchers. They're elected representatives. Um, I forget the number. It's like 30 or 40 of them across the province. And um, they, you know, they meet and they vote on resolutions, etc., etc. So a bencher puts forward a resolution to the other benchers saying, no, let's not accredit Trinity, let's not let Trinity Western University graduates um, take the bar course. And that fails. The benchers do not pass that resolution. This leads to an outcry amongst certain members of the legal profession. And there's a mechanism invoked which calls a special general meeting to vote on a resolution where the members ask the benchers to effectively reconsider and not allow Trinity Western University Law School graduates to take the bar course. It was a really fascinating day, the day of that general meeting. There were locations all over the province. The big one, obviously, was in Vancouver, down at the convention center. So it was like the weirdest day. Like, you just had all these, like, you know, kind of rumpled lawyers sort of shuffling down <laughs> Howe Street to the convention center. And we all went down, um, voted on the resolution, and sort of shuffled back. It was a sunny day, as I recall. It was kind of a festive atmosphere. It was a strange day. Um, the result of that special general meeting was a fairly overwhelming vote against allowing Trinity Western to have its members or its uh, graduates take the PLTC course. And I should have said the reason for this is the community covenant that Trinity Western University um, asks 
or requires its students to sign and abide by, which at the time um, required students in all aspects of their um, lives to sort of respect the idea that sexual relations should be between a man and a woman in marriage. And the issue, of course, was um, whether this is discriminatory against LGBTQ people. And the issue is receives a special salience because unlike America, where there's lots of law schools of different quality and lots of spots for people who want at least some kind of law degree, in Canada, as you all well know, there are not that many spots. Um, you know, you got one, but there are students who wish they were sitting here right now, and some of them, I guess, listen to the podcast. Hello <laughs> <laughs> out there. Um, and so they, um, so you have a, you know, the setup for a clash of charter rights. You have a claim of uh, infringement of equality because if you're LGBTQ, you've got 60 less spots you can go to in law schools in Canada, or at least 60 less spots you can go to if you're not willing to either live a lie or um, you know have great personal sacrifice in the way you live your life. Um, on the other side, you have a school that's um, organized around um, you know, traditional Christian uh, religious practices, which have you know, absolutely stood the test of time and have been, uh, you know, people would think it's crazy to think this is even an issue 30 years ago. You think how, how far things have come um, in terms of, uh, of you know, the way society has developed is, you know, it's really remarkable. There's just a lot of history around, um, you know, these, the views expressed in the covenant not just being uncontroversial, being widely shared by, by many people. So, so you have a fascinating clash of, of interests here. And getting back to the process, the Law Society eventually is now say, okay, well, we, we had our meeting, we didn't um, you know, pass a motion that would remove Trinity Western's ability to put its students in the bar course. We had this special meeting called, um, and there's a pretty overwhelming response that said we should have gone the other way. However, uh, not everybody went to the special general meeting, so let's do another process just to really make sure that membership as a whole uh, you know, is of the same view that we saw coming out of this special meeting. Let's do a referendum. So they decide to hold a referendum, and this time they mail out ballots to every lawyer, and they say if, what is it, one-third of members vote in this referendum, and two-thirds of those members say that Trinity Western should not be allowed to have a law school whose graduates can take the PLTC course, then we will um, you know, respect that and pass a, a um, resolution 
disallowing their members, their graduates to take the, the course. And so goes ahead through mail-in ballots, 8,000 um, votes are, are done and uh, 6,000 were for the resolution against the school. So in excess of the two-thirds majority. And so the benchers following this passed the referendum, uh, passed the resolution, I should say, adopting the referendum and saying that the school cannot have its graduates uh, attend the PLTC course. They don't give reasons for this. They just pass this resolution. And so Trinity Western University and a student who would have attended the law school bring a judicial review application. And it goes up through the uh, BC Supreme Court, BC Court of Appeal. Maybe it goes right to the BC Court of Appeal. I'm actually procedurally, I think that might have been what happened. Um, the Court of Appeal, or it's found to have, um, a lawsuit found to have exceeded its statutory powers, and this is quashed at the judicial review level. Supreme Court of Canada hears it, and you get these four different sets of reasons. Um, three of which concurring in the result that the law society had the power and the, the um, decision to not allow the law school's graduates to attend the PLTC could stand. Two judgment, two judges in dissent saying the opposite. The majority reasons are written by Justice Abella, and she has with her Justices Moldaver, Karakatsanis. Um, now Chief Justice Wagner, Wagner, and Justice Gascon. So she's got five judges with her. Um, and she applies the Doré framework fundamentally. So the first question that is tackled is a sort of fundamental administrative law question, which is not strictly speaking, within the charter values framework. And that's the question of, hold on, nobody's disputing that Trinity Western University is an academically rigorous school and that their law school would be academically rigorous and as the Federation of Law Societies found would um, you know, be able to give a competent legal education. So law society, um, you know, sort of who made you the morals police? Who made you the, where do you, where do you say it's your job to go beyond just looking at the academic rigor of the program? And the, law, the um, majority does a statutory analysis to ascertain first the scope of the statutory discretion that's given to the law society benchers and whether they could even consider this covenant and the, the potential impact on LGBTQ people in the province. So you want to think there, what framework are we in? Well, this is just ordinary administrative law review to ascertain whether there's been a reasonable interpretation of the statutory scheme at issue or to see whether there's been a misinterpretation which has led to irrelevant considerations being brought into the analysis. 
And the majority finds that the statutory scheme does indeed allow the benchers the ability to consider more broad factors than merely the academic rigor of the school. They say they're allowed to consider the overall public interest in determining whether to approve a particular school. And this is part of the Law Society's overarching mandate to uphold and protect the public interest in the administration of justice. And interpreting its statutory mandate, they say, is a matter that is entitled to significant deference in relation to. We shouldn't be surprised about that. Um, this is pre-Vavilov, but the there's an interesting little wrinkle that's added here, which you might want to hold on to, which is they say, when we're talking about a self-regulating profession like the law, it's especially important that we give deference to their interpretation of their statutory mandate because they ought not to be unduly interfered with by government in their self-regulation, and they ought not to be unduly interfered with by the courts. Uh, the self-regulation should entail a large amount of deference in how you see the scope of your mandate. So they conclude the Law Society was entitled to be concerned that inequitable barriers on entry to law schools would effectively impose inequitable barriers on entry to the profession and risk decreasing diversity within the bar. And they say we're entitled to be, the law society's entitled to be interested in diversity in the bar. That improves the competence of the bar. You know, the, the, the more people who are fighting for the same positions, the higher the competence of the people who can actually get those. And the overall quality of legal services are gonna be improved by having diverse representation available to the public. Um, still in this sort of preliminary uh, issue of whether they were within their statutory mandate at all to consider this type of issue, they reject the idea that human rights, the Human Rights Tribunal, was the only way to go. Um, they say, you know, in essence, this is getting back to the ideas of concurrent jurisdiction that we talked about in the Horrocks context. And they say, listen, just because human rights can consider claims of discrimination doesn't mean that other tribunals, when it comes properly before them within their statutory mandate, cannot determine those issues also. And indeed, they should be determining those issues. They should be considering those issues if they come out before them. So, before getting into the Dore analysis, they then turn a bit to the referendum process and the absence of reasons. And uh, you know, if we jump ahead, the, the absence of reasons for Justices Brown and Cote, in light of the fact that they find the charter rights of the Trinity Western University community members to be at issue, they find that to be a complete answer to the suggestion there could be a justified decision here. They say you can't infringe somebody's charter rights in the absence of reasons and have me say it's justified. So the lack of reasons here is, is very um, salient for the, that dissenting opinions analysis. 
but let's look at how the majority tackles it. And so they say, all right, let's think about the referendum process before getting into the reasons, because that sort of explains the absence of reasons. And they say, the notion that there's a, um, there was a referendum done is not at all foreign to the statutory scheme as envisioned by Parliament. Indeed, there's a power for the benchers to call a binding referendum should they so choose. And even if you don't use that explicit provision to give you a binding referendum, they say we have no problem with you seeking the input from membership on an important issue like this. Um, this is something that is contemplated through the vehicle of a binding referendum, and we say it's therefore acceptable for you to have chosen to go by the process of a non-binding referendum. And they say that this binding, or sorry, this uh, proceeding by referendum is not prohibited or precluded simply because what's at stake implicates charter rights or values. They say that we are comforted because when we look at the record of what was discussed at these meetings that were held amongst the Law Society benchers, they were clearly alive to the issues at stake. They were alive to the charter rights that were being um, claimed to be at issue. So this is not an issue of the referendum being a vehicle through which the benchers could ignore these rights and values. They were rather considered in the process of coming to the idea of proceeding by referendum. And they also say that having understood and demonstrated an understanding of the rights and issues at stake, this allows us to review this decision in the absence of reasons. And they say that in the absence of reasons, we need to consider you know, not just the reasons that were offered, and there weren't reasons offered, but the reasons that could have been offered. We want to look at the record that was before the tribunal, including those speeches, to understand what reasons could have been offered. So post-Vavilov, you want to remember this idea that we're going to allow the court to make up reasons that could have been offered is rejected if you have a circumstance where insufficient reasons were given, where there was a duty to provide reasons. However, in the complete absence of reasons, even post-Vavilov, the court still allows the idea you could look at the reasons that could have been offered. So thinking in your general framework, you want to think, like, how would you tackle a question like this? And really, you have as a first level a Baker question. Does the duty of fairness require the provision of reasons in this circumstance? If you could say, yes, it did, then this decision would have to be set aside on a procedural fairness ground. However, if you say no in the circumstances, um, 
the provision of reasons was not required. And I think they basically look at the fact that you can proceed by referendum as showing an intent that you can proceed without reasons because if there's a referendum, what, what motivated the 8,000 people who voted? That's a, it's not a clear way to ascertain that. Um, so just thinking your overall framework, you know, first question is, are more reasons required? And you would look at Baker to answer that. Then the second question is, you know, if reasons are not required, can we ascertain from the record the reasons that could have been offered? And they say, you know, in essence, here we can. And we can do so even when we're trying to ascertain the reasons that could have been offered to justify limiting a charter value or charter right. So having tackled the reasons issue and the referendum, the propriety of the referendum issue, they then move on to the Doré framework to ascertain if the decision did indeed comport with charter values. And you'll see at uh, paragraphs 57 through 59, the majority's re-articulation of the Doré framework, which is a use, another useful set of paragraphs to have a look at. And they say, if it's a discretionary decision that engages the charter, it's reviewed on the Doré framework, delegated authority must be exercised in light of the constitutional guarantees and the values they reflect. In Loyola's court explained that under the Doré framework, charter values are those values that underpin each right and give it meaning and which help determine the extent of any given infringement in the particular administrative context and correlatively, which limitations on that right are proportionate in light of the applicable statutory objectives. And they say that the charter rights are no less robustly protected under this administrative law framework in using a Doré analysis. Um, they, they effectively repeat at paragraph 58 the notion that you're having an identification of the um, object of the legislation, identify the values, and then see if there's a proportionate balancing. They, again, don't give much more guidance to a tribunal than that. And then they sort of have a jab at the minority decisions, saying, hey, Doré and Loyal are binding precedents of this court, and we shouldn't be revisiting this issue. So having re-articulated this framework, what's the statutory objective, what are the charter rights and values at issue, Charter values that issue that underpin those charter rights. How do we proportionally uh, balance those things? They go on to consider whether a charter right is implicated at all on behalf of the Trinity Western University students. And the court is not unanimous on whether there even is a religious freedom right at issue here. Justice Rowe in lengthy reasons, lengthy concurring reasons, argues that no, there's no Section 2A religious freedom right at issue here. And in substance, what he says is what 2A protects is the beliefs 
the practices that your religion compels. And he says, there's no evidence that the, um, the Christian faith uh, shared by the members of the Trinity Western University community uh, compels them to only study in a circumstance where everyone's abiding by that same you know, conduct as set out in the covenant. So it's a, it's a preference to, to be in this like-minded community, but it's not a religious mandate to only study in such a community. And so he says you haven't even gotten within the charter. You have almost a Goldilocks sort of approach here where um, you know, Rose says there's no Section 2A right at issue. Then the majority says there is, but it's not, um, it's not the most you know, compelling Section 2A right. Then the McLaughlin concurring reasons say no, this is a very important Section 2A right. And then the justices Brown and Cote reasons say really only the religious right is at stake here, not the equality right that the other judges um, rely upon as well. So the majority says, look, it's clear that the members of the community sincerely believe that studying in a community defined by religious beliefs in which members follow particular religious rules of conduct contributes to their spiritual development. And we're going to say that you know, beliefs that are strongly held, that they contribute to your spiritual development, that attracts Section 2A protection. We're not going to define Section 2A as only protecting you know, beliefs that you are sort of compelled to practice, as Justice Rowe would. And they say, you know, this belief that your spiritual development is aided by studying amongst members of a similar faith is supported by adoption of the covenant. And so the covenant supports the practice of studying an environment infused with evangelical beliefs. So they accept that we have a Section 2A issue here. And then they go on to consider whether the decision not to approve the school limits the freedom of religion in a manner that's more than trivial or insubstantial. That's coming from the Anselm case. And they find there has been a limit on the right of Trinity Western University students to enhance their spiritual development by studying in a place defined by their religious beliefs. But they do note that here's where they start to kind of chip away at the strength of the religious case here. They say, first off, let's be clear, it's not the university and its evangelical community that is fostered that's the source of the problem that we're you know, addressing here. It's the covenant itself. And they say, it's, you know, in essence, you could not have this covenant, and you could have your law program. You, you could abandon it, at least for the law school, and you would be entitled to go ahead. Um, and they sort of say that, I think, as a, as a counter to accusations that they are, in fact, discriminating against the school because of its Christian beliefs. And they say, no, 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 it's not your beliefs. 
I don't, ca I don't mind there being an evangelical law school. It's just this idea that we're going to you know, limit membership in this school community uh, and not allow LGBTQ students to attend without that sacrifice. And so they say, you know, we have this covenant. It is protected. Uh, there, there is a protected to a right at stake, but we're not going to overly define the right at stake. We're going to say that there's, uh, you know, th there's some weakness in the articulation of the religious interest at stake that, that needs to be borne in mind when we measure the Section 2A religious rights as against the interests of the LGBTQ students who would like to attend, um, you know, maybe any law school. And so they say, let's consider the burden that is borne by students who cannot abide by the covenant because, for example, they're LGBTQ, and they say you've got, you know, 60 less law school spots to apply for or you suffer the harm of having to lie to obtain a degree or sacrifice important aspects of who they are. So they fundamentally seem to say, you have a sort of abstract loss with Trinity Western of a desire to you know, learn in a community defined by this covenant where you've got this guarantee that not just the school's sort of philosophy and morals will be consistent with this Christian teaching, but there'll be this added guarantee that everybody is uh, willing to abide by those teachings. They say that's, that is a loss to your religious interests, but it's rather abstract. You know, you're slightly less happy with the school that you're attending. It's not ideal. Whereas the loss for the LGBTQ students, they say, is concrete. That, you very well may not get to become a lawyer because of this covenant. Whereas if this covenant wasn't there and those 60 spots were there, you know, you do get to become a lawyer. So they then do this balancing exercise and they say, given the significant benefits to the relevant statutory objectives, that is uh, promoting you know, inclusion within law schools and this minor significance of the limitation of the charter rights at issue and given the absence of a reasonable alternative that would reduce the impact on charter protections, the decision to refuse to approve the law school represents a proportionate balance. They say in other circumstances, a more significant, serious limitation may be entitled to greater weight in the balance and change the outcome, but that's not the case here. So they say the decision gives effect as fully as possible to the charter protections at stake given the particular statutory mandate. Therefore, it amounted to a proportionate balancing and was reasonable. So that's the majority of reasons. You have a adherence to the Dore Loyola framework, a focus on the values of religious freedom and equality, a consideration of the statutory mandate, which included to consider 
promoting diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, a weighing of the religious interest at stake, a balancing of that religious interest against the statutory mandate, including the promotion of diversity and inclusion, a finding that that balancing was reasonable. And therefore, even in the absence of reasons, a decision allowing the law society's decision to stand. Now, I, I'm sorry that we don't have time to get into the concurring and dissenting reasons today, and it's also perhaps especially bad timing, given that we have a week off, um, and we'll be a little bit rusty on this when we come back a week Wednesday. But I do want to finish this off. Uh, I think it's very important um, to grapple with the dissents, and really especially the Brown and Cote dissent. So I would, uh, if you haven't had a chance, I strongly encourage you to have a look at that. Otherwise, enjoy your week off. I'm ready for it. I, <laughs> I think that'd be great, but I also am ready to um, to talk about your papers if you want to, or about anything that's troubling you in the course. Um, certainly, I don't have anything going on um, from 10:30 to 12:30 Wednesday and Friday of next week. So, if you want to have a call, uh, have a Zoom. If you want to get together with more than one person, um, do a group discussion. If we can absolutely do that, let's let's email about that. Um, otherwise, you know, have a great weekend, have a great week, and um, I'll see you in a week and a half.